Before we start this week's episode, I wanted to take a moment and wish everyone happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and give some genuine well wishes from myself, my wife, our kids, and our canine companions. This episode was originally intended to air last week on December 15th, so it's been recorded and edited for a few days now. I wanted to make sure my family and I passed along some holiday tidings since I didn't in the episode itself. More than that, though, I wanted to personally thank you. Yes, you. The person listening to this right now, I am talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to the show and giving me some of your precious time. Thank you for being patient with me as I learn how to do all this podcasting stuff. Thank you for the support, but most of all, thanks for just being a genuine, awesome person. I hope you have a fantastic time this holiday season, whether you're spending it with your family or you're just hunkering down for some much-needed relaxation. You deserve every second of it. And when the time comes to crack open a holiday beer, I'll be toasting you, friend. So thanks again for being here. Alright, enough of the mushy shit. You're here for a podcast. Let's dial up the tunes and get to it. Enjoy the show, everybody. Here we go. Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 22 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I've discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us on our Wildlands expedition today, my friend. As winter continues to sink its icy claws into us, especially around here in Ohio, one thing you can always count on is the fact that we'll always keep the campfire going and our supplies well stocked. But even despite the warm fire, my wife insists on making sure our canine companions, Dee Dee and Dexter, wear their little winter coats when braving the elements. And I can't quite tell if they're appreciative of the extra layer or if they're just tolerating the circumstances, but both of them will be around to say hello and give your legs the weekly obligatory sniffing. Just make sure you do not laugh or snicker at them. Even if they do like their winter coats, I'm getting this feeling that they're getting a little self-conscious about them. On today's episode, we're talking about another game in the Resident Evil universe. This time, the very last numbered entry to be released on the original PlayStation. A game that was fortunate enough to get a remake that dropped back in 2020, and a game that started to subtly tip the franchise towards a more action-oriented experience long before Resident Evil 4 would grab that baton and run with it. Today, we're going to be talking about Resident Evil 3. It was released about a year and a half after Resident Evil 2, and to say I played the shit out of Resident Evil 2 would be an understatement. While I certainly wasn't becoming bored with Resident Evil 2 when I was younger, I was starting to wonder what was next for the franchise. On one hand, I was curious as to how our heroes were going to take down the massive Umbrella Corporation. The way Resident Evil 2 ended made it very clear that our heroes had their sights set on taking out Umbrella. But on the other hand, the zombie outbreak that took over Raccoon City could be used as a way to tell some pretty awesome stories if the story went that direction. 
and in the case of Resident Evil 3, it was the latter that we got to experience. Making her franchise debut in the very first game, Star's Alpha Team member Jill Valentine returns in RE3. After the events of the first game, it was revealed that Jill has been trying to investigate the Umbrella Corporation in hopes of holding them responsible for the mansion incident and the Arclay Mountains outside of the city. However, the T-virus that was responsible for turning humans into mindless, rotting zombies has spread into the city. It doesn't take much time at all for Raccoon City to fall, and soon the undead walk the streets. The objective of Resident Evil 3 is a very simple one. Escape from Raccoon City while surviving by any means necessary. And while that sounds easy enough for someone like Jill, there's something out there that's coming for her. It's after Star's members, and there may be no escape. Resident Evil 3 continues the gameplay formula that the series is known for up to this point, while introducing some new gameplay elements. We'll go into some of those features in the show itself, but one new addition to this game that I don't think people talk about much are the randomized item locations, enemy locations, and randomized events. While not truly random in the normal sense, the developers added some random elements into the gameplay to increase its replay value and keep players on their toes. This even included the timing of some of the jump scares. So maybe that zombie bursts out of that police car at you? Maybe it's going to wait for you to run past it a few more times? Or maybe it won't show up until another playthrough altogether? These additions really ratcheted up the tension in the game. And that's the key difference when it comes to the other games in the series. While themes of horror and isolation are what the series is known for up to this point, Resident Evil 3 works to give players more of a feeling of anxiety and paranoia. With the randomization elements at play, live player choice that alters the experience, and a relentless pursuer that will always be right on your heels, I feel like RE3 doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. If you've played this game before, I'm curious about your thoughts on this entry into the Resident Evil universe. And if you haven't played this game before, I'll let my stories and experiences help you decide if this is an entry into the universe that you want to partake in. Spoiler alert though, I really think you should give this game a go. Now before we get into the episode itself, I have some plugs to get out of the way, and I also like using this time to give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. This is where I'll talk about what's coming up on the podcast itself, what may potentially be coming up on future episodes, what games I'm playing, or whatever else is on my mind that I feel like rambling about. If none of this sounds interesting to you and you want to breeze past it so you can get to the Resident Evil 3 conversation, no worries, you can skip ahead until you hear the music, which should be about 5-7 to seven minutes up the road. In the show description, I should have loaded timestamps so you can check that out and know exactly where you need to go if you don't want to fumble around. So now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I have too much to go over this week. Things in general are going pretty well here in the Wildlands, and as the year winds down and we start to close it out, I'm really excited every time I look back and see how far we've come. It still blows my mind that there are people out there that want to listen to the show. We're on pace to break over 500 downloads across all episodes well before the end of the year, and that's a number I was not expecting to get to. Now, I don't know if that's a good number, given how many episodes we have, but it's still really awesome to me. While I'm certainly interested in growing the show and getting more and more people listening, my biggest concern is putting out quality episodes and building the Retro Wildlands archives. 
between my full-time job, the holidays coming up, family activities, playing the games for the podcast, writing up show scripts and interacting with folks on social media, I don't really have much wiggle room. I figure of all the things to put the effort in regarding the show, I want to make sure I'm pumping out quality episodes, you know, ones that I'm proud of. They might not be the best, and I'm sure there are better gaming podcasts out there, but I don't want to just open the content pipes and let the sludge flow out. I want to make sure the water dripping into your canteens is as pure as it can be and as clear as I can filter it. All that to say, I wanted to say thank you to everyone that's given me a bit of feedback on the show, or just reached out to chat about the podcast, or even just bullshit for a little bit. I'm still having a blast doing this, and I really do appreciate anyone who's taken the time to listen to even one episode of the show. On that note, if you end up liking the show and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider following us on your preferred podcasting platform. Better yet, please leave a good review on your platform if it allows you to do so. You can even leave us a review on our Facebook page, too. Good reviews along with downloads are what will get us to pop up more in search feeds, so if you have a minute to spare, I'd really appreciate you taking the time. I'll even read some of the reviews on the podcast and give you a shout-out if that's something you'd be interested in. No obligation or anything. Honestly, the fact that you're even listening to this right now is more than I could ask for, so thanks again, my friend. As far as what's coming up on the podcast, I started messing around with The Lion King over the weekend. That one came out on the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. Way back when I first started the podcast, I had a friend that mentioned this game as one they remembered playing way back in the day. I've never played it before, and honestly, after I popped it in for the first time, I can kind of understand why. Because this game is hard as fuck. And it might be me, but this game seems like it would have made Little Nomad asked to have more chores instead of time to play this game. Now that said though, it does look absolutely gorgeous, and when I do figure out how to make my way through a stage, it is pretty satisfying. So I'll be playing through this game to see if I can make a compelling enough episode about it. Other than that, I got a hold of the Castlevania Anniversary Collection on my Xbox One, thanks to a pretty hefty Black Friday deal. We covered Castlevania on episode 5 of the podcast, and every now and then I think about taking on another entry into the series. Castlevania was my first and only journey into the series so far, so I have a lot of ground to eventually cover. I thought about taking them in order, but I heard Castlevania 2 isn't the shiniest spoon in the drawer compared to Castlevania 3, but we'll have to see. I also have Tomb Raider on the original PlayStation staring at me from my game shelf, so that's still one I need to get back to. So between those games, I've got a decent amount of things to play for the show. And by the time you're hearing this, Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII Reunion is out, and I'm hoping to be in possession of that little gem. I highly doubt I'll do an episode on that game since I just covered the original on the PSP a couple of shows back, but I can't wait to play this remaster. I mean, really though, if you want me to cover the new Crisis Core remaster on an episode of the podcast, I would be more than happy to. You just have to let me know and I'll make it a priority. So speaking of potentially covering the new Crisis Core game, if there's any other game out there that you'd like me to cover on the podcast that you would think would make a good episode, just let me know. How do you do that, you might be wondering? You can do that and more over on our social media platforms. 
We have a presence over on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter if you search at Retro Wildlands. Right off the bat, it's the quickest and easiest way to get a hold of me directly if you wanted to reach out and offer any feedback on the show, suggest a game to have me cover, or just talk games in general. Following us on social will also spice up your timelines and feeds with some gaming goodness, and you'll get the inside track on what game is coming up on the show before the next episode drops. When I lock in the next episode for the podcast, I'll let the cat out of the bag on the weekend by posting a call-out for comments on our social media platforms. If you want to interact with the show, you're welcome to submit comments, questions, or thoughts about anything pertaining to the upcoming episode, any gaming-related topics, the podcast itself, myself, or whatever comes to mind. I'll read and respond to them in the intro section of that next podcast. Also over the weekend, I've been creating and posting gameplay demos using some footage that I've been capturing using the world's cheapest capture card, and while they aren't really much, I am pretty proud of those little things. So follow us on social to check those out, and anything else that I might toss up there. The Wildlands are a place full of adventure and discovery, and roaming them by myself is fine and all, but I'd rather build up our expedition and make those discoveries with some good people, so come check us out. You can be a lurker over on our socials too if you want to just sit back and hang out. Here in the Wildlands, all are welcome. Okay, I think that's really all I have for this week's Shop Talk session. Shout out to Curtis from our Facebook page, who coined that phrase, by the way. Gather around the campfire, my friends. It's time to get to the reason that you're all here. It's time to talk about Resident Evil 3. Released for the Sony PlayStation back on September 22nd, 1999, we play as Star's Alpha Team member Jill Valentine. Jill returns to the franchise after her debut in the first Resident Evil game, and we find her smack dab in the middle of the zombie outbreak that overtakes the Midwestern town of Raccoon City one day before Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield arrive in Resident Evil 2. Jill's mission is a very simple one. Escape from Raccoon City. It won't be an easy task, though. Zombies and numerous undead monsters crawl the streets. It will take all of her training and skill to see her through as she desperately searches for a way to escape this nightmare. But there's something out there. It's much larger than any of those zombies, and it seems hell-bent on making sure that Jill doesn't live to see another day. So let's gear up, Wildlanders. Grab your trusty RPD issue handgun, your reloading tool, and don't forget your lockpick. There isn't going to be any rescue, we have to get out of here. Let's stick together and make our way to... Wait a minute, do you hear that? I don't think we're alone in here. Stars. I remember being really excited for Resident Evil 3 when I heard it was coming out back in 1999. I wouldn't say I'm a Resident Evil fanboy, per se, 
But back in the first couple years of the series being out on the PlayStation, I was beyond hooked. Even today, I can't quite put my finger on why I loved this game so much. I loved the characters, the storyline was simple and somewhat believable to me, and I loved that feeling of being scared. It was an adrenaline rush that I still look for today. Playing the first Resident Evil with my stepdad after he wouldn't let me because of all the violence and gore will probably be one of my favorite gaming memories. When Resident Evil 2 came out, it expanded on a lot of what the original game tried to do. Really, it surpassed the original in almost every conceivable way. I love the new characters, Leon and Claire, I love the replayability, and I love the extra game mode that came with the game's DualShock Edition. I craved anything and everything Resident Evil and patiently waited for the next installment. When Resident Evil 3 was announced and I learned it would take place during the Raccoon City zombie outbreak, and the star of the game would be none other than Jill Valentine, I knew I had to get my hands on it. I'm pretty sure I got this game as either a Christmas or birthday gift, I can't really remember. All I remember was I played the shit out of this game, though. Looking back, Resident Evil 3 could have been the worst game in the series up to that point, but I would have never known that. I didn't really care to analyze it or compare it to the other two games. I had more of what I wanted. A new story in the RE universe, my beloved pre-rendered backgrounds, and a chance to feel that scary suspense I felt the first few times I played the previous games. And while I got all of this and more, it wasn't until I was much older that I decided to look at this game with a more critical eye. Is Resident Evil 3 as good a game as I remember? Is it still fun to play today? Is it a must-play for casual and serious gamers alike? We all settle in, friend. It's time for Adult Nomad to peel back the layers a bit and see what it is that we're working with. So, what is this game? Resident Evil 3 is a third-person survival horror game that was developed and published by Capcom. It's the third mainline entry into the Resident Evil universe that puts players in the shoes of Jill Valentine, the heroine from the first RE game. Jill finds herself right in the middle of Raccoon City, just as the zombie outbreak starts to engulf the town. The premise of the game is a pretty simple one. As the player, we need to help keep Jill alive and get her out of the city. Things, however, are not going to be that simple, though. In no time at all, zombies and other monsters have overtaken the city. As we navigate Jill through the city's streets and to her salvation, we'll need to confront or avoid these threats. The Umbrella Corporation, the sinister organization responsible for the creation of the T-Virus, have some plans of their own as well. Amid the chaos of the outbreak, they dispatch their own forces for reasons unknown. As we make our way through Raccoon City, we'll start to uncover more of Umbrella's seedier intentions as we meet up with members of their mercenary force trapped within the city. But what's worse, Umbrella has let loose something within the city that's been programmed to hunt down any surviving members of the STARS unit, the tactical force belonging to the Raccoon City Police Department. With the odds increasingly stacked against us and our heroine, will Jill be able to escape the city alive? That, my friends, is going to be completely up to us. Now, as far as the story goes, if you've ever played Resident Evil 3 before, I'm not going to go too deep into it, so you don't have to worry about story spoilers or anything in this episode of the show. 
I might touch on a couple little points here and there, but the story isn't really all that complex, and there aren't any narrative revelations in this game that rock the Resident Evil universe or your gameplay experience or anything. While the events in this game do a really good job of expanding on the franchise itself, and was a welcome addition to the series back in 1999, I don't think this game is required if you're looking to get the most out of the overall story. It is a pretty cool and self-contained sort of narrative, though. It gives us, as the player, just enough of a reason to do the things that we're going to be doing, and enough to push us along to the game's conclusion. Not that the overall storyline in the Resident Evil universe is all that complicated up to this point, but I really appreciated Resident Evil 3 for this. It knew what it wanted to be, and it stuck to the simplicity in favor of the gameplay experience. Now, if you've hung out with us by the campfire here in the Retro Wildlands for any length of time, you'll know that I don't tend to dive deep into the development history or anything like that when I talk about games. There are much better podcasters, YouTubers, and other content creators out there that do a fantastic job of this, so I tend to leave that sort of stuff to the professionals. However, I did want to speak a little bit about this game's development, though, when it comes to why the story is so simplistic. I learned all of this recently for the first time, and I found it sort of fascinating. So I read that originally, Resident Evil 3 as we know it was going to originally be a game that would take place on a luxury cruise liner. The star of the game was set to be Hunk, an umbrella agent tasked with securing a sample of the G-Virus. The premise sounds pretty awesome, but during the game's development, Sony announced the PlayStation 2, and the development team around this game determined that they won't have this game ready before the PS2 launches. Because of this, the game was scrapped. Not wanting to have players wait until the PlayStation 2 launches before making another Resident Evil game for fans, Capcom decided to use a side project they'd been working on as the next mainline game in the series. This side project was being developed by a team that was largely inexperienced on the surface. The premise was to create a Resident Evil game that would star a new character to the franchise who is trying to escape the Raccoon City outbreak. In order to make this game a mainline entry, it was decided that this unknown character would be replaced with a character already part of the series that fans knew and could immediately connect with. That character was none other than Jill Valentine. Story elements were expanded upon a bit, but this is one of the main reasons the game itself has such a simplistic narrative. Resident Evil 3 as we know it wasn't supposed to exist, but instead be something completely different. The idea of regular civilians escaping Raccoon City wouldn't be revisited until Resident Evil Outbreak on the PlayStation 2, but I always wondered what could have been with both of these cancelled projects. So now that we're working with the game that we got, does this game bring anything new to the table? As far as its presentation goes, it's the best looking game out of the original three. By this point in the series and the PlayStation's life cycle, Capcom knew what buttons to press and settings to fine-tune in order to get the most out of that little gray rectangle. Character models and in-game assets look great, but where RE3 really shines visually is in its pre-rendered backgrounds. Like the two games before it, backgrounds are pre-rendered images and the camera angles are fixed to a specific viewpoint. Because the game is largely taking place within the city limits themselves, you'll be experiencing a lot of outdoor areas. 
While there's plenty of games out there that visually depict a devastated cityscape, Resident Evil 3 stands with the best in terms of how good it actually looks overall. If you've played Resident Evil 2 before, the game starts you off on the city streets for a short time before putting you inside the police department and other interior locations. I wanted so bad to be able to explore the city and see what it looked like after the outbreak. In this game, we definitely got this opportunity, and the visuals were everything I had hoped for. You get to explore a city that is very much lived in, and if you look close enough, you can sort of see remnants of the humans that came before you. It's a wonderful sight to behold, and what really made the city more fun to work my way through was my attachment to the city itself. You see, Raccoon City is its own character in the Resident Evil universe. After playing the first two games, I started to connect with it. It's what made playing Resident Evil 3 as enjoyable as it was for me because I finally got to explore it. The backgrounds and visual representations of the city did well to showcase everything. With this in mind, I actually recommend you play the first two games in the series before you tackle Resident Evil 3, even though Resident Evil 3's story is as small and condensed as it is. It's not that experiencing the first two games in order are going to fill in any storyline gaps or anything that you're going to miss out on while playing the third game. It's just, as you go through the first two games and get connected to the lure and just the franchise itself, you'll understand how special Raccoon City actually is. So when you do get to traverse it in RE3, it'll make that whole experience that much more enhanced. Really, because the story is so light in Resident Evil 3, the actual weight of what's going on won't quite hit you right in my opinion. Especially when the game reaches its epic conclusion. When it comes to other aspects of the game's presentation, the soundtrack on offer is pretty stellar. While it's not my personal favorite overall out of the series, there are some tracks on offer here that really set the game's tone and build up Raccoon City as this desolate wasteland that is home to the undead. Even though the game takes place in larger, more open areas like city streets, parks, and other outdoor locations, the music on offer helps create a claustrophobic atmosphere and make the player feel like danger can still be hiding around every corner. Fires are burning all around us, objects are destroyed, and dead bodies litter the ground. If you stop and listen, you can hear the moans and cries of the undead being carried by the wind. But the music also carries a tinge of determination as well. While you're alone and isolated inside the city, it doesn't mean there isn't hope. Jill as a character and you as a player won't just find a place to hide and wait for the inevitable. You're both fighters, and you'll do what you can to survive the city streets in order to make your escape to freedom. The music in this game does a great job of making you feel like you're surrounded on all sides, but still manages to instill in you with just enough resolve to help you push forward. I really appreciated the game for this, and that's why the music you're listening to now is one of my favorite tracks in the entire game. Alright, I think that about covers the overall setup, and we touched on the presentation a bit. Where Resident Evil really puts its eggs is in the gameplay basket. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to how the game plays and some of its more defining features. I say we boot the game up and mess around with what the game itself has to offer and what makes this experience so unique.
Right off the bat, when you start the game, you're met with a choice of difficulty options. Hard mode and easy mode. In my opinion, I feel these difficulty options on paper are a little misleading. At its core, Resident Evil 3 is an inherently difficult game. The number of enemies you encounter is much more than the games before it, and some of the enemies you encounter are pretty tough and relentless, especially a certain hulking terror I haven't mentioned yet. The hard mode option plays much like earlier games in the series where your focus will be on survival. Really, it's the Resident Evil experience that we're all used to up to this point. Thinking about it out loud, I think it should be called normal mode, or maybe even like survival mode. Now if you play easy mode, you'll start the game off with an assault rifle, some healing items, and the item box you come across will be stocked full of high-powered weapons and ammo. I'm talking about the shotgun, the powerful magnum handgun, and several more ammo magazines for the assault rifle. You also have the ability to save the game as many times as you want. It's actually pretty fun to play the game through this way. Because of that, I really think they should have called this mode something other than easy. Maybe funhouse mode or something like that. Whatever you want to call it, I recommend you play through the game on hard mode if it's your first time. It's how the game was intended to be played. You'll also have access to certain things that won't be available to you when you play through the easy mode. Things like the mine thrower weapon or a couple other custom weapons available only in this game. With everything new that Resident Evil 3 brings to the table, you don't want to miss out on these things. Regardless of what option we pick, the story will play out exactly the same. For the sake of this podcast episode, we're going to be playing on hard mode. When we make our selection, it's time to get serious. Resident Evil We're treated to an opening scene where Jill herself sets up the story. After surviving the events of the first game, it seems like the Umbrella Corporation have yet to answer for their crimes. Apparently, no one was willing to stand up to the company, and that lack of conviction, despite Jill's efforts, would lead to the destruction of Raccoon City. Now all Jill can do is try to survive and make her last escape. The game opens with a CGI cutscene that depicts the fall of the city. Tons of zombies are taking to the streets while police officers and SWAT team members work to try and take out the undead threat. However, nothing they can do seems to be working and the undead horde starts to overtake police barricades. Law enforcement personnel and civilians are taken down by the zombie horde, and it's pretty evident that the situation has spiraled out of control. For an unknown reason, the Umbrella Corporation sends their own troops into the city to combat the zombie threat, though even they are quickly being overtaken and brought down. Eventually, the city falls, and the only people walking the streets now are the dead ones. The game itself starts as we take control of Jill just as she's blown straight out of her apartment building. Fire engulfs everything around her and slowly a few zombies start shambling towards her from the fiery wreckage. Without any direction, we head away from the apartment building down a narrow street. Standing in front of us is a single zombie blocking our path. Holding the right shoulder button, we raise the pistol in our hands, and by pressing the X button on our controller, we fire. After about four shots, the zombie falls on its back and we can safely run past it. We get to a dumpster blocking our way, but with another press of the X button, we vault on top of it. 
We jump down and we immediately discover that the undead are converging on both sides of us. With nowhere to go, Jill backs herself up against a wall and immediately realizes there's a door behind her. It's stuck shut, but Jill frantically starts to throw her shoulder into it. Just as the zombie horde is about to overtake her, the door gives way. Jill backs up through the door, in sheer awe of the horde of undead moving towards her. Hands lash out and try to grab her from nearby windows, and it's at this point that Jill quickly turns on her heels and races down the alley. September 28th, Daylight. The monsters have overtaken the city, and somehow, we're still alive. Jill finds herself in a warehouse where she's been holding up since the night before. She comes to the realization that no help is coming and it's time to get out of Dodge. She approaches another survivor that's been held up with her, a man named Dario. However, Dario has other plans. Okay, we've got to get out of here. What? What do you think you're talking about? I just lost my daughter out there! How dare you tell me to go back outside? I'm sorry about your daughter, but there isn't going to be any rescue. We have to get out of here! No! I'm not going anywhere! I'd rather starve to death in here than be eaten by one of those undead monsters! Now leave me alone! Dario locks himself inside one of the storage containers in the warehouse, and the game gives us control of Jill back. Now that we're safely inside and we're in no danger, this is a great time to check out how the game controls and go over some of the game's new features. First up, if I haven't mentioned it before, the tank control scheme that's been in the previous Resident Evil games makes a return here. If you happen to miss the five or six other times I described tank controls on the podcast, it's a control scheme where your character's movement is dependent on the direction that they're facing instead of the camera view. Pressing up on the directional pad will move your character forward relative to the direction that they're facing. Pressing left or right will only pivot the character in those directions, and pressing down will make your character move backwards relative to the direction they're facing. I'm still head over heels in love with this control scheme, but it is still as clunky as all hell. However, we're introduced to a few new features that give us a bit more mobility in this game, and we're going to need every edge we can since Resident Evil 3 is much more action-focused than the entries before it. The first new control addition is the 180-degree quick turn. By pressing down on the D-pad and then pressing the run button, Jill will spin on her heels and turn around in one fluid motion. It's a great way to get yourself out of danger and just makes Jill more maneuverable without having to watch her slowly turn around. The second new control addition is the inclusion of the emergency evade mechanic. Basically what that means is Jill has the ability to dodge incoming enemy attacks. For a game that's super stiff in the way it controls, the idea that you can dodge sounds pretty damn amazing. And the concept in and of itself is really badass. That is, when it works. Here's how it's supposed to work. When an enemy attack is about to connect with Jill, pressing the shoulder button we used earlier to draw Jill's weapon at the right time will have Jill evade the attack. If Jill is already aiming her weapon, pressing the shoot button at the right time will have her evade the attack as well. She'll either sidestep to the left or right, duck below the attack, or even dive out of the way altogether. 
The animation seems to be random and situational, but if successful, Jill will take no damage and be in a position to either go on the offensive or beat a quick retreat. For zombies, Jill will shoulder check them and push them back instead of dodging. It's pretty cool to see Jill throw her weight into an enemy and have her plow through anything standing in her way or effortlessly evade incoming attacks. Now, all this seems easy in practice, but the timing part of it is the most complicated. There are no on-screen prompts to tell you when to evade, and while some of the wind-up animations on most of the enemies you face are pretty obvious, some are a lot harder to see. Zombies in particular are pretty hard to shove. They tend to shamble randomly, and they don't really telegraph a grab before they actually latch onto you. It can take a ton of trial and error to get good with this mechanic, and even then, you'll get hit more often than you'd like. One of the other things that work against you while dodging is that you can actually potentially put yourself in more danger by using it. When Jill enters a dodge animation, she's not invincible while she's performing it, meaning if a monster swings its claw out and manages to still hit Jill while she's evading, she'll still take damage. Once you start the dodge, you can't stop it until the animation is complete. Against one monster, this usually isn't the worst thing. Against a group, and it could spell disaster. Another thing to consider is that, if you're in a narrow passageway or a hallway, Jill may sidestep, but may not be able to go anywhere, and she'll take damage anyway. This actually reminds me of a time where I was stuck in a corner by a couple of zombie dogs. They had pressed me so far into a corner that, when I tried to pull my gun to fire, Jill would dodge and run right into another dog and take damage. As each dog took turns lunging, the game kept making me dodge into the others over and over again. I was able to make it out of the situation, but I lost a ton of health in the process. The biggest problem with the whole system is that it's tied to the same button that you use to draw and fire your weapon. If dodging had its own button, I think it would have been a much easier tool to use. Now, does that mean that the dodging mechanic as a whole is busted? No. When you use it successfully, it's pretty badass. Sidestepping a zombie dog lunge and turning around to fire on it is really awesome and satisfying. And some of the bigger boss enemies can be made a little easier if you get really good at dodging. You don't have to use this feature if you don't want to, the game itself plays just fine without it. It's just there if you want it. There's one more new feature to the game that I want to touch on before we step outside back onto the Raccoon City streets. If we open up our inventory, we'll notice that we have a peculiar little item. Alongside our handgun, we'll have an item called the Reloading Tool. This item is used with gunpowder to produce ammo, and depending on the type of gunpowder, the ammo created will vary. Also in our inventory are a couple of files that we can read. The blue book covers the game's basic controls, while the red one is a breakdown on how to use the reloading tool. Alright, quick crash course on gunpowder. There are three types of gunpowder in the game. A, B, and C. A is colored red, B is yellow, and C is blue. To my knowledge, only A and B gunpowder are available in the game to find and pick up. You can create C gunpowder by combining A and B together. The file in your inventory has a list of all the recipes if I'm not mistaken. But to keep it basic, A gunpowder creates handgun bullets, B creates shotgun shells, and C creates grenade rounds for the grenade launcher. Now that is just the basics. 
You can create all types of ammo using gunpowder combinations. You can even combine gunpowder with grenade rounds and create varying types. So with that said, you can create ammo like magnum rounds, flame rounds, and even a new type of grenade ammo called freeze rounds. See, while there's a decent amount of ammo in the world to come across and find on their own, you're going to have to stockpile gunpowder and make whatever ammo you need or want based on the weapons that you prefer. And the way the game is set up, you can't get a healthy mix of everything. You have to be somewhat strategic on what you want to create. Just to put that in perspective, it takes three gunpowder C's to make 24 magnum bullets. You need one A and one B to make one C. I'm sure you can do the math, but that is a lot of gunpowder to collect. However you decide to use your gunpowder, this opens the door for all sorts of gameplay variety. Another cool thing to mention before I forget, the more Jill creates a specific type of ammunition, the more experience she'll receive. That means she'll create more ammo with each gunpowder she uses as she goes. Example, one gunpowder A creates 15 handgun bullets. After two or three times of doing this, she'll start to create 17 rounds of handgun bullets. Now the absolute best part of this whole process is the enhanced ammo that you can create. Exclusive to handgun bullets and shotgun shells, after you use these respective gunpowders eight times, you'll have the option to create enhanced ammo. This ammo is much more powerful than your basic ammo that you create. It's a system that rewards you with sticking with one weapon type, and I love that it feels like Jill gains real-world experience by doing something over and over like she's getting good at it. To put the power of the enhanced ammo in perspective, the enhanced ammo will make most enemies stagger in a single hit. This even happens with the biggest of the bad monsters in the game, you know, the big guy I still haven't talked about yet. For this reason, whenever I play, I tend to favor making enhanced ammo for the handgun specifically. If you hoard all of your A gunpowder and just make handgun bullets over and over again, by the time you have a decent stockpile of enhanced ammo, you're about halfway done with the game at that point, just in time to take on some of the game's bigger monsters. So that's the reloading tool and gunpowder usage in a nutshell. So with the game's dodge system, 180 degree quick turn, and the reloading tool, we're pretty flush with new and exciting features. You know what else would be really cool? The ability to freely walk up and down stairs without having to press the action button. Well my friends, ask and you shall receive because that is another new addition to this game. As we start to make our way out of the warehouse, we have to ascend a set of stairs. In past games, we would have to press the action button and watch our character walk up the stairs automatically. Now we can just walk up them. Nice! This does come with a bit of a caveat, though. Enemies can now traverse stairs when previously they could not, so we have to keep that in mind. Alright, it's time to set out onto the streets of Raccoon City once again and see if we can somehow find a way out of this nightmare. We exit the warehouse and make our way down an alley where we pass through another door and come into yet another alley. It's pretty quiet outside. If there are survivors out there, they aren't making a lot of noise. The wind howls and it carries the moans of the undead with it. The fight for the city is long over and it's pretty clear that just by standing still for a moment and listening, that we humans did not win the day. We move through the alley, and to the left of the screen is a dumpster, and right in front of it we see a body. 
Whoever that person is, is no longer among the living. As we approach, we half expect the body to rise and start shambling towards us. However, from behind the dumpster, a zombie gets to its feet, moaning out a cry. We start to run away from it, and as we do, the body on the ground rises and starts to walk after us too. Rounding the corner, the screen transitions to a view that shows us a road littered with debris. Another zombie stands in the middle of the road and we're about to run right into its grasp. Right as the zombie is about to grab us, we press the shoulder button and perform an emergency evade. Jill throws her shoulder into the zombie, causing it to stumble backwards. While it's doing this, we run past. As we continue, we find a red drum propped up on one side of the screen, opposite a demolished police cruiser. Now, if video games have taught us anything, it's that red barrels always go boom. We decide to let the three zombies shamble towards us. Once they concentrate around the barrel, we aim our handgun and pull the trigger. In a fiery blast, the barrel explodes and the three zombies are violently disassembled into nice little chunks. However that barrel got there will remain a mystery, but we're thankful nonetheless. We'll certainly have to keep an eye out for more of these environmental opportunities like this. Pressing on, we move into another alley, and as we pass a metal door, it bursts open and somebody runs out. It happens in a flash, but whoever it was had on a uniform of some kind. Multiple zombies come walking out after the stranger. There's too many of them to take on, so we decide to make a run for it. We continue to make our way through the city streets. The sheer number of zombies walking around is astounding. It is nothing like the Spencer Mansion incident, that is for damn sure. The good thing about there being so much room to move around though, is that we can run around just about all of the threats right now. Eventually we find our way into the backside of a bar. As soon as we enter, we spot the guy who ran from us earlier, and he is not in a good way. A zombie is latched onto him and is taking a chunk right out of his neck. It's Brad, another member of STARS. Get away! We regain control of Jill and raise our weapon. We fire at the zombie along with Brad in an effort to bring it down. Eventually, the zombie goes down for good. Brad, hang in there. Why isn't someone doing something about this? I didn't know you were still alive, Jill. The police aren't trained for this kind of situation. What could they do? Listen, he's coming for us. We're both gonna die. What are you saying? You'll see. He's after STARS members. There's no escape. Brad was clearly shaken up by whatever it was that he was hinting at. There's something coming for us and he's after STARS members? Huh, wonder who that could be. Well, there's no possible way for us to figure that out right now, so we press on. Before leaving the bar, however, we spot a lighter on a nearby table. We grab it before moving out. The areas that we've been moving through are pretty vast. It's usually at this point in the game that I tend to backtrack to the area that Brad burst out of when we first saw him. 
If we go through that door and descend the stairs, we'll find a bottle of lighter fluid that we can use to make the lighter we found usable again by combining the two items in our inventory. In the same room, we'll find a pump-action shotgun. Any Resident Evil veteran will love the sight of this weapon. And in classic Resident Evil fashion, pointing up and shooting a zombie in the head with a shotgun is a surefire way to make the zombie stay down for good. And it's just glorious to see. As we continue on, we'll eventually come to a gate that's been tied shut with some rope. Examining it, we can tell it's soaked in oil. Someone that's come and gone had an idea on how to get rid of the ropes. We follow through with their process and use the lighter to set the rope on fire. The rope immediately burns to a crisp because video game logic, and we proceed to the next area. In this alleyway, we can see a raging fire burning that's blocking our path to the left, so we continue to the right. Sounds of barking dogs can be heard, and as soon as we round the corner, a zombie dog bursts through the flames and starts to chase after us. We start to run and come across another dog further up. Shit, one behind us, one in front of us, and this alley is narrow as hell. Right away, we spot a side door and we rush towards it. Flinging it open, we enter the room on the other side. Whew, looks like we found our first save room. Or is it safe room? Pretty sure it's save room. We're gonna go with save room. But I know that if I'm wrong, a loyal wildlander will contact me and light my ass up, so we'll worry about the semantics later. Save rooms are where you'll find item boxes where you can store excess items. And just like the previous Resident Evil games, storing items in one item box makes them accessible in all other item boxes you find. In this particular save room, there's two containers of gunpowder on the shelves by the door. We grab those and use our reloading tool to make a couple boxes of ammo. Now, before we move on back out onto the city streets, I have to say, this save room music right here is probably my favorite save room music in the entire Resident Evil series. There's just something about it. The piano that plays is very calm and soothing and really makes you feel like you're safe. You can catch your breath, reload your weapons, and lick your wounds. But then there's a side to the music that reminds you that you might be safe for the moment, but you still have a long way to go in order to survive. It's a slightly serious tone that keeps you grounded, so you don't really let your guard down. I'd be curious what save room music is your favorite. Okay, once we get ourselves organized, it's time to keep moving. As we exit the save room, we run past the dogs and exit the area into another wide open street. This area seems to be zombie free, but that doesn't stop us from keeping a good pace as we go. We hang a right and continue past the burning wreckage of vehicles. We come to a door that happens to be locked. The prompt on screen that comes up tells us that the lock is a simple lock. Huh. I'll bet if we had a lockpick, Jill, the master of unlocking, could get through that door. But where could we get a lockpick? Oh, probably the Raccoon City Police Department. I'm sure Jill has a spare lockpick up there somewhere. We double back and continue past the door that we just came through. Sure enough, we come across the Raccoon City Police Department. That was convenient. As we open the steel gates to proceed into the front area of the station, we have no idea that things are about to go from bad to total shitstorm. 
As we pass through the gates, we're greeted with a CGI cutscene showing Jill walking to the big double doors of the RPD. The gate opens up behind her, startling her. Brad stumbles in. He's clearly been wounded by something. He stumbles towards Jill, calling out to her. But just as he starts to come towards Jill, a giant hulking man-like creature lands right in front of him and lets out a terrifying howl. Brad tries to run, but finds himself cornered. He calls out to Jill, pleading for help. But since we don't have control of Jill, all we can do is watch as the creature grabs Brad by the throat and lifts him off the ground. As Brad struggles, the creature raises its free hand and a single tentacle emerges from it. He places his hand in front of Brad's face, and in a single motion, the tentacle pierces Brad's face and exits out the back of his head. The creature tosses Brad aside like a ragdoll and looks towards Jill. Jill, ever hopeful that Brad is just sleeping, calls out to him. Unfortunately, he's pretty dead at this point. The creature starts to walk towards Jill and utters one single word. Stars. In a surprise reveal that nobody saw coming, we are introduced to the game's big bad, Nemesis. Nemesis is, and will forever be, one of my favorite monsters in the entire Resident Evil franchise, and one of my favorite baddies of all time. He's big, strong, fast, and just absolutely menacing. His growls and roars are so iconic. He's a killing machine, and he only cares about one thing. Stars. He wants you dead and won't stop until your bloody corpse is at his feet. We have very little time to process what's happened. Nemesis is walking towards us. At this point, the screen goes white for a moment and two sentences pop up on screen. Fight with the monster and enter the police station. After a moment, the game resumes and the words remain on screen. We need to make a choice and we don't have long to decide. Do we stand our ground and fight? Or do we get the hell out of there and enter the police station? Nemesis continues to move towards us. We look down at Brad's lifeless body. This monster, this asshole, just murdered our friend and our comrade. We grip our weapon and steel ourselves and select the only option that makes sense. We select enter the police station because did you just hear how I described Brad dying? A tentacle to the face. No way, we are getting the fuck out of here. We make our selection and Jill automatically evades Nemesis and runs right into the police station just as Nemesis is hot on our heels. Inside the police station, Nemesis bashes on the big double doors, but eventually he gives up and moves on. We're alone in the lobby of the police station and we're once again safe. For now. Oh, that was certainly a ride, wasn't it? Back when I first played the game when I was younger, I never stood my ground to fight Nemesis. I always ran. Although the right answer in this specific scenario is to always fight him, so you can go over to Brad's body and grab a key item that he has on him that will make your life a little easier, then run into the police station. But either way, now that we've met Nemesis and made our first live selection choice, let's talk about these gameplay features a bit. So, Nemesis. Nemesis acts like a constant pursuer and will be on your ass pretty consistently until the end of the game now. 
He'll pop up in certain scripted sections of the game, but once he's around, he'll stalk you from room to room for a while until you move on to the next area. And yes, you heard that right. From room to room. Nemesis will follow you sometimes, so just because you evade him and move into another area doesn't mean that he's going to give up. He is literally like the T-1000 from Terminator 2. He will not stop until you're dead. A better comparison, he's a lot like Mr. X in Resident Evil 2. And when Nemesis is skulking around, the music becomes very low and very tense. The music here is perfect and really captures the tension that the game is trying to make you feel. Really, in the first two Resident Evil games, you could more or less move from room to room and clear out all the threats if you used your ammo wisely enough. Eventually, you would conquer areas like the mansion or the police station, and you'd be able to roam around pretty freely. But all of that is thrown out the window when Nemesis is around. And because he's around, you're always on edge. The tense music that plays when Nemesis is around even plays when you're in a save room. The game doesn't really give you a chance to be complacent, you're always forced to drive forwards. That's something new up to this point, and for some players it can make them kind of uncomfortable. I know it did when I was little and it still kind of does today, but that's a good thing. It means that the game is really working the tension angle, and it's one of my favorite parts about the whole experience. Oh, and sometimes he has a rocket launcher, so there's that. Now the thing about Nemesis, he can be fought and he can be beaten. Anytime you encounter him, you can take him down with conventional weaponry, but it's going to take a lot of ammo and you better get good at dodging. If you manage to take him down, he'll drop a unique item if you're playing on hard mode. Some of the items include pieces to weapons, like a powerful handgun with a high fire rate, and a chance to instantly decapitate a zombie, or you can come across parts to a wild western custom M37 shotgun that allows you to fire shotgun shells much faster than the pump action. If you've ever seen the movie Terminator 2, I'm 99% positive it's the same shotgun that the Terminator uses in the motorcycle chase scene. And Jill loads another shell just like in the movie. It's fucking badass. Nemesis will also drop a cool item called the First Aid Box, which comes with three first aid sprays, and the whole item only takes up one inventory slot. It's a great reward for all the effort. But again, taking on Nemesis is no easy task, especially if it's your first time playing through the game. I recommend steering clear of him, at least on your first run through. Whatever you decide to do though, I love that the option is there, and you're rewarded if you decide to go the distance. If you do manage to down Nemesis, besides getting an item, he'll leave you alone for a while so you can go back to exploring and puzzle solving in relative peace. But he will be back, believe that. The last new addition to Resident Evil 3 is what's called Live Selection. This was the very first video game I remember playing that gave me a very obvious player choice in the middle of gameplay. Throughout the game, Jill is going to find herself at a crossroads and need to make a decision on something. The kicker is, these selections need to be made quickly, as every live decision happens when Jill is in some kind of immediate danger. You'll have a limited time to make a choice, and if you decide to do nothing, Jill will generally take damage and be put in a bad situation, so do not hesitate. 
Depending on what choice you make, you'll be able to see unique areas of the game and watch as different story elements play out. The ending you get in Resident Evil 3 is dependent on the live selection choices that you make. This whole feature is probably my favorite thing about this whole game. This allows the story to play out differently and really increases the replay value of the entire game. In Resident Evil 2, I love that you could play as two different characters. It gave the game a lot of replayability as you played through the game multiple times. The live selection feature is a great way to increase replayability in Resident Evil 3. As you progress through the game, the familiar Resident Evil formula is still there. The game itself is divided into little chunks, usually around a specific area where you have to accomplish something to move forward. Find the key to open the one door, find the items you need to operate a cable car, stuff like that. There's the usual light puzzle solving to be had, and plenty of monsters standing in your way. Speaking of the cable car, Jill will eventually come across a small band of Umbrella mercenaries that were sent into the city. Carlos Oliveira is the first one that she'll make contact with. While Carlos isn't really loyal to Umbrella, seeing as he's a mercenary and all, he doesn't quite understand why Jill doesn't trust him and his team. Jill, of course, despises anything that even remotely resembles an Umbrella nowadays, and their relationship starts off a little rocky. Eventually, the two warm to each other and begin to work together. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of it all, but I will say, I really appreciated how their relationship formed over the course of the game. Now, Resident Evil is not really known for its deep story and character development, at least not this early in the series, but I grew to like Jill as a character even more as I watched her interact with Carlos and his team. Jill Valentine is a badass straight up, but even she knows and understands that she's not a superhero. She's vulnerable, just like the rest of us, and because of that, she strikes up an alliance with the mercenaries. Even super cops need a helping hand now and again, and that really helped humanize Jill for me. As we wind it down, the only other thing I wanted to mention was that Resident Evil 3 has a decent amount of unlockable content if you play through the game enough times. There are five unlockable costumes that Jill can wear in subsequent playthroughs. If you don't like Jill's tactical tube top and miniskirt, you can switch it out for a couple others. My favorite has to be her original STARS uniform from the first game. Jill can also dress like Regina from Dino Crisis 2. You can also unlock a mini-game that some of you Resident Evil veterans may have heard of. It's called The Mercenaries. You play as one of the three mercenaries that Jill comes across in the city. Carlos, Mikhail, or Nikolai. You have to make your way from one end of the city to the other, but you only have a two-minute time limit to do it in. Obviously, this isn't enough time, but you can earn more time by killing monsters, dodging attacks, rescuing hostages, and more. When you finish a run, you'll be rewarded money. You can then spend that money on some pretty cool weapons that you can use in the main game. Weapons like an assault rifle with infinite ammunition, a Gatling gun with infinite ammunition, a rocket launcher with infinite ammunition, or infinite ammunition for every weapon in the game. The game mode is fun, and it is a lot more robust than I think some players realize. I would play this game mode a lot, but admittedly, I only ever used Mihail. Carlos is a little harder to play as with his loadouts, and Nikolai only has a handgun and a knife. 
I never got good enough to do well with Carlos or Nikolai, but it doesn't matter. It was a fun game to play, and the rewards were well worth it. I liked earning them like this instead of just trying to finish the game with the fastest time. I will say, though, once you do earn all the available awards, there's not much incentive to go back and play the game through, but it's still there. Last and certainly not least, every time you beat Resident Evil 3, you're given a character epilogue. These epilogues will include characters from other Resident Evil games like Leon, Claire, Chris, and even Ada. There are eight in total, so to see them all, you'll have to beat the game a total of eight times. While the replayability in this game is pretty high, this will probably burn you out about halfway through. It didn't bother me as a kid though, since this was only one of the few games I actually had to play, but nowadays, today, I, I can't imagine I'd make the time for this. The epilogues are always online if you really don't want to put the work in, but all the work aside, I like the ability to be able to see what happened to all of my favorite characters in the series up to this point. For anyone out there that are completionists in any regard when it comes to their games, it's a great reward. And if you finish collecting all of the epilogues, you'll get a thank you message from the development team, if I remember right. While the journey does get a little monotonous after your fourth or fifth playthrough, it is nice to see, and I appreciated it. So when I think back to my time with Resident Evil 3, I don't have too much to complain about overall. But that's not to say the game doesn't have its flaws. While I love the inclusion of the dodge mechanic, it did not work as intended all the time. The timing against enemy attacks was either very forgiving, or it had to be extremely precise. You never knew if Jill was going to slide to one side, duck, or do a tactical roll out of the way either. And even though most of the game puts you in environments that are largely wide open with plenty of room to maneuver, your ability to dodge really gets hampered if you're in a narrow space. Jill will enter a dodge animation, and even if she hits a wall or other obstruction, she'll still continue through that whole animation while you're stuck on that object. That gives the enemy plenty of time to grab or strike you, and it's really annoying when it happens. And because dodging is mapped to the same buttons as your aim and shoot buttons, you may find yourself dodging when you really didn't mean to or really don't want to. I'm sure it's a common suggestion nowadays, but I really would have loved for dodging to be mapped to their own buttons. Still, when you do perform a successful dodge that you intended to pull off, it looks really cool and you feel damn good when you evade an attack and use that moment to go on the offensive or hightail it the hell out of dodge. While Nemesis is a huge threat in this game, most of his attacks are actually very dodgeable. I've seen videos of people taking out Nemesis using only a combat knife. They'd take a swing, perform a dodge, and repeat that process over and over until he went down. That kind of crazy isn't for me personally, but it's another thing the game lets you do if you decide to get good enough at it. I love evasion mechanics in games in general, and the one in Resident Evil 3 is a solid, serviceable attempt, I will say. I did have one more random gripe I needed to get off my chest before we close it down. While a majority of the locations you visit in this game are pretty vast, interesting, and have their own character, the Raccoon City Park and Cemetery areas are by far my least favorite. There's some great areas in this game, and they seem to have purpose and even their own personality. The city streets themselves, the hospital, the dead factory. 
but the park and cemetery areas seem almost out of place. The game as a whole moves with some pretty decent pacing, but things slow down considerably when you get to this area of the game. It actually feels like this section of the game was shoehorned in to add more to the game's overall playtime. Now don't get me wrong, I am all about more Resident Evil, but it just felt a little funky to me. I will say, there was one part of this area that legitimately made me upset when I was younger, and genuinely pissed me off as an adult. You'll come across this fountain, and next to it will be a control box where you can open it up and move around several white and black gears. Right by the control box will be a picture that has all sorts of gear combinations. Successfully rearrange the gears and you'll turn on and off different parts of the fountain. That's pretty neat, I guess, but it didn't really make much sense. It isn't until you jump into the fountain itself and round a corner do you see a hatch in the floor that you need to open, and the gear combination to open the hatch is shown right above it. It really pissed me off that I found myself playing around with these gear combinations, clearly posted, not understanding what the hell these things even are supposed to do, but the actual thing I needed to do was hidden from me, and only after I wasted time playing with the gears did I find the answer to a riddle I didn't even know was a riddle. I really did not appreciate it, and really felt like my time as a player wasn't being valued. It doesn't mean I shouldn't have been given the answer right away, but at least give me an idea of what the objective is here, and I'll happily work through it. I don't know, I felt like this whole area was just a downer. All sorts of cool and exciting things have happened up to this point. We're dodging monsters, outrunning nemesis, and then... Hey, welcome to Raccoon City Park. Go flail around for a little bit and enjoy some disjointed pacing. <sighs> so I didn't really mean to end things with a negative. All in all, I really do enjoy Resident Evil 3. While some of the game's mechanics are hit and miss like the dodge system, I love pretty much everything else. The addition of the gunpowder mechanic gives a ton of flexibility to the player and allows you to play the game sort of how you want when it comes to how you use your resources. Live selection, while not the most robust of systems, really makes it feel like you're the one calling the shots and making the decisions on the fly. You may not know the first time how your decisions are going to impact the story, but that mystery makes the experience that much more compelling. And above all of that, I never get tired of the overall experience. When I was younger, Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine were like superheroes to me when I played the first game. While highly trained and capable survivors, they were still humans facing incredible odds. This is magnified tenfold in Resident Evil 3. Jill has changed since the mansion incident, and her resolve to do the right thing is even further solidified. You can get this sense in how she interacts with people in the story. Jill is determined and focused, but she still allows herself to be scared and can find herself in situations of vulnerability. But she's not going to let Umbrella get away with the things that they've done. Throughout the entire game, she is relentlessly pursued and hindered by Nemesis. Despite it all, Jill stands firm, digs deep, and ultimately comes out on top. Playing this game as a kid, none of this was lost on me. Jill's behavior and actions made an impression on me as a kid, and I think it's one of the things I experienced growing up that slowly started to build up my confidence. I was a pretty quiet kid back in the day, especially growing up as an only child. But it was experiences like this, seeing Jill fight to survive and come out on top, 
that really stuck with me. If you've not experienced this game before, I think you should. And if you have, but it's been a while, you should consider going back to it if you can. While Resident Evil 3 pushes the slider a little bit more towards action and slightly away from survival horror, you're going to have a good time here. The replayability alone is enough reason to jump into this experience. But if that's not enough, Nemesis should be. While other games have probably done the stalker thing a little bit better in some ways, Resident Evil 3 practically nailed it for me. The whole series is built around the monsters and creatures roaming around that want you dead, but everything changes when one of those creatures is coming for you and won't stop until it finds you. The randomness of the game in terms of item and enemy layouts just further add to it all. The feeling of tension and anxiety really ratchets up, especially when you know Nemesis is on the hunt for you. You can't let your guard down, not even for a second. Once you do, you'll never see him coming. as they say is that this has been episode 22 of the retro wildlands resident evil 3 for the sony playstation thank you very much for tuning into the show today i really enjoyed having you here on the expedition with us there's still so much to talk about when it comes to resident evil 3 but i hope the show did the game some decent justice all in all i say it's a pretty damn good game for something that wasn't even supposed to be a mainline entry into the series and it was developed by a less than experienced development team if you're even a casual resident evil fan i really think you're gonna get a kick out of this game if you like the show today and you want to show it or myself some support please consider subscribing to the show on your preferred podcasting platform and if you have the ability to please consider leaving us a good review Positive reviews help give the podcast more visibility to other potential listeners, so it's a great way to help us grow if you have a few minutes to spare. It would also be pretty awesome if you consider spreading the word about the podcast. Spread the word to your friends or family if they'd be at all interested in checking out the show. Better yet, try spreading the word to your veterinarian. Veterinarian? Veterinarian. Those people that work on pets. Next time you take your pet in for their next oil change or tire rotation, let them know about the Retro Wildlands. We have two awesome canines here on our expedition who are really appreciative of the veterinarian craft, and after working with animals all day, what better way to unwind than joining us by the campfire? And one more reminder about social media. You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter if you search at Retro Wildlands. It is the best way to reach out to me directly and interact with the show. 
You're more than welcome to join up with the expedition over there and say hi, leave us some feedback, share your thoughts on Resident Evil 3, or whatever else might be on your mind. So what's coming up in our next episode? Like I mentioned in the intro, I have my eyes on The Lion King, for better or worse, but I also have the Castlevania collection on my Xbox One that's begging to be explored. And Tomb Raider from the original PlayStation is still looking at me from my shelf. Like, right now. I can feel Lara Croft looking at me right over there to my left. So more than likely, one of these three paths will be taken next time. Or I might even see something shiny in the collection and we'll all be surprised. But that's the mystery and the charm of the Retro Wildlands. Hang out in it enough and you'll start to find things you never thought you'd find. Whatever happens, I hope you can join us in our expedition again. I enjoyed having you this time and look forward to seeing you down the road. Until next time, my friends, my name is Nomad and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 